Lord, I just pray for all the families that have lost loved ones this year. And Lord, just the, the grieving and the, the process that it takes to, um, to put one foot in front of the other each day. Some days are heavier than others. Lord, I, I pray that you would continue to heal hearts, that you continue to heal families that have lost those who they um, will always miss, Lord, in this life. But Lord, I thank you for your, your salvation and for eternity. I thank you for the eternal perspective that your word gives us. And Lord, I thank you for the body, the church that is equipped to come around those who are hurting and to care for them. And I pray, Lord, that you would activate us to care for those who are in mourning, those who are grieving. And Lord, that we would take seriously when your word says to weep with those who weep. Lord, that we would rejoice with those who rejoice as well. And Lord, that you would bring those times of mourning and grief to joy. Lord, only you can do that because you can heal our hearts. And, and Lord, that takes time. So God, I just pray that in the meantime, that your body, the church, would be caring and loving, would be your words, your actions. Lord, we just uh, we thank you that we don't have to do life alone, that you've given us community. Lord, I pray that you would um, bring healing through that community. And Father, we just pray for our time as we study your word this morning for encouragement that you would build up your church. Lord, as your word convicts us, Lord, that we would see, Jesus, that you have forgiven us. You have called us into your marvelous light. So, Lord, may we walk in the light this morning. May our minds and our hearts be open to you, be soft in remembering, Lord, that you love us more than we could ever even understand. So thank you, Lord, for your encouragement today, and I pray that your word would come alive. Lord, your, your word itself says that it's living and active. And so, Lord, I pray that you would discern and help us to discern between the thoughts and the intentions of our heart, between the joints and the marrow of our very souls. Minister in this time powerfully, we ask, by the power of the Spirit, work in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you guys uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. I'm going to read a text over us this morning, and then we'll be back in the Gospel of Mark right afterwards. We'll flip over there. But first, um, let's turn to Isaiah 5, and I'd like for you to follow along with me as I read this over us this morning. What we're going to read as you turn there, and it's going to be the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 5, is entitled The Song of the Vineyard. And this echoes in our text in Mark chapter 12 this morning. I felt like it would be a really good idea for us to begin our time by looking at the Old Testament basis uh, for a parable that Jesus is going to tell in Mark chapter 12. Isaiah records this in chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. 
What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. Let's turn to Mark chapter 12 this morning. Last week we closed chapter 11 with Jesus talking with the members of the Sanhedrin, his authority being challenged. And with the religious leaders still standing in front of him, we're going to pick up in chapter 12, and Jesus is going to begin with an echo of that passage in Isaiah chapter 5. He's going to tell them a parable. What's fascinating about this parable, and just to kind of give us a brief overview of where we're going here, and don't worry, this isn't going to be sad and dreary. This will be encouraging in the end, because we're his body, the church. But we have to be true to the text. We have to look at what it says here. And here's something that's interesting to understand. Whenever we see Jesus begin to teach with parables, an understanding of parables is essential for us if we want to understand what he's talking about. And if you want to understand what Jesus says when he speaks parabolically, you're seeking to understand about 35% of his recorded sayings. 35% of what Jesus is recorded as saying was spoken in a parabolic manner. He was using parables. And it's important for us to remember this, that parables are not merely just the illustrations for Jesus' teaching. They are the teaching. The parables are the teaching of Jesus. And so when you read a parable, it's not intended to be something that leads us into this nebulous place of not understanding. In fact, we are called by the Spirit to listen and to understand how it applies to our lives. Now, most parables, for most of them, The meaning isn't found in searching through every detail. Lots of people have gotten into trouble doing that. The idea is not to dig into every detail of a parable. They're not designed to be read. They're designed to be spoken. And so it's better to hear a parable said than it is to read it and dissect it because of the nature of that style of teaching. The meaning would flash out at the listener as they spoke. That was the intention of the parable. And for that reason, most parables shouldn't be treated as allegory. But before us here in Mark chapter 12 this morning is an exception. (laughs) And I love exceptions. And Jesus isn't all about doing things the same way all the time, is he? I mean, if you really think that, go back through his healings. And you'll see how uniquely he healed people. Jesus will mix things up every now and then. And most parables shouldn't be treated as allegory. But we know that this one is an exception to that. And here's why. It echoes so strongly of Isaiah 5, we know that Jesus is correlating to an Old Testament passage of Scripture. That's why I wanted to read it ahead of time. But it also is revealed that not only does this have a connection to Old Testament teaching in more than just one place, but something very important happens at the end of this parable. And I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to read to you verse 12 before we read the parable. You ready for me to cheat? says this of the religious leaders. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Something unique about this parable. The religious leaders know what Jesus is talking about. 
They know what he's referring to. This has strong allegorical ties, and the meaning is revealed to them. He is calling them to account. And he's revealing to them the truth that the Old Testament scriptures began teaching, and Jesus, as always, is fulfilling that Old Testament scripture with the reality of the truth of who he is. And so, this parable is fun and unique and interesting. And for us believers, we can look at it and say, all right, we can actually see characters within this. The message it contains for us who are listening, and and we can see how it applies. And I'm going to outline some of those different characters for us. I'm going to show you what Jesus is calling our attention to, and then we'll talk about how it applies to us. Sound good? Great. Mark chapter 12. Let's begin in verse 1. We'll read down through that first verse that I read for you, through verse 12. He, speaking of Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. To help visually, I'm going to outline the characters for you and show you the connection to these pieces of this parable that Jesus is telling that works much more like an allegory than many parables. As you look at the parable in front of you, and as you start to work your way through it, you notice that it begins with the man who planted a vineyard, and this would be God the Father. Then you notice that there's a vineyard. That would be the people of Israel. You see the tenant farmers. That would be the rulers of Israel. The servants, you probably identified this right away if you know your Old Testament, would be the prophets. Some they beat, some they killed. And then the son, I think, the hero of our story, would be Jesus. And so here's the outline of what Jesus is doing inside of this parable. Here are the characters that are in play. And it's interesting to me that as we look at the great care that the man who planted the vineyard, that being God the Father, notice how he established his vineyard. It was given every necessary provision. There was nothing that this vineyard lacked. It was completely as it should be and prepared to be tended by these tenant farmers. There was a wall to mark out its boundaries, and that keeps out robbers, and it defends it. There's a wine vat. In a vineyard, there's a wine press, which the grapes were trodden under feet, and then beneath that, if you dug it out, there was a wine vat that that juice would then press into. So it's equipped fully to produce the fruit of the vine. There's a tower. 
And in this, the wine was stored. The cultivators had their lodging. And this is a tower to keep watch from to, again, prevent robbers at harvest time. So God has prepared this vineyard in such a way that it's not lacking anything. It has everything that it needs. He entrusts it to these tenant farmers, the rulers of Israel, and he sends his servants, the prophets. By the way, if you want to do a fun study in the scriptures, you can look and see that the rulers of Israel, you might think the kings, but the great rulers of Israel that we would look at and say men who are faithful to God are referred to as servants. Often in their ministry, if you look at Moses in, in situations like Joshua 14, it says Moses, the servant of God. And then you see David, even in 2 Samuel chapter 3, it says David, the servant of God. Even though they were considered rulers, they still were serving the people on behalf of the Lord. Here, the servants, primarily focusing on the prophets, came to collect the fruit, or in this case, to prove the fruit to see if there was any. The prophets were a challenge against the monarchical reign. They were a challenge challenge against corrupt leadership. They would call them account to God. They would come and say, where is the real fruit that God deserves from his vineyard that ought to be reaped? Remember, we we as the church understand this because we want the Lord to receive all the worship that he's worthy of in this world. That's what we're here to do. We're here to, to do the work that he's called us to do. And by his spirit, he would produce fruit in our lives that he's worthy of that will worship him. So the servants, the prophets came and they came to see And to prove what was really happening in the vineyard. And they were abused. Some were killed. And finally, as the parable continues on, the man who planted the vineyard, God, says, there's one more to send. And that's my son. And Jesus brings the reality of this story, of this parable, right into the present. Because standing before them is this son calling them on account of the fruit. And remember this, all of this done with the visual of the fig tree. The fig tree that was cursed, that didn't have buds on it, that wasn't producing fruit, and the lack of fruitful worship that Jesus had cleansed the temple of. All of this is in the backdrop. Jesus is just continuing to build off of what he's already taught them. The parable ends... With, the, with the, the son being put to death and cast out of the vineyard, where was Jesus crucified? It wasn't in Jerusalem. It was outside of town. They would have moved him outside of the walls to do this. He's killed and he's violently thrown out of the vineyard that his father planted. The parable ends in verse 9 with the owner, God, bringing justice upon the farmers, the rulers, and alludes to the upcoming gospel mission to the Gentiles. He will give the vineyard to whom in verse 9? Well, it says this, he will give it to others. And he alludes to this ministry of the Gentiles that's forthcoming after his death and resurrection. It's a fascinating parable. And I think it's pretty straightforward to understand. It's worth noting that even on the spur of the moment, the hearers, as evidenced by their response... We're able to identify these characters and scenes because the thoughts and the pictures were familiar to them. They identify the factors in play and understand what Jesus is saying. But we need to look at something a little bit more closely. Because this parable doesn't just reveal the truth about God, 
his people, his prophets, his son, and how this is all played out up until the days of Jesus. This parable reveals the character of God to us. And here's how. We can't miss this. This parable reveals four truths about God. The first is this, is God is generous. God is generous. The vineyard is equipped with everything that was necessary to make the work of the farmers easy, profitable. All they had to do was use the resources that he provided. Had God left anything lacking from this situation for them to do the right thing, to be fruit bearers in the way that he called them to be? Church, let me just make a correlation. In Christ, by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, has God left you wanting in any strength, empowering, gifting that you need to live honorably in Christ? To walk according to his ways. What do you lack that the Spirit does not provide? God has generously provided for you the provision of the Holy Spirit to do the work that he's put you here to do. This story really does echo into the future as we, the church, are being provided for by God. And some people will look around them at the society and the culture around them and go, how are we supposed to get anything done? Oh, it's not by works, it's by faith. You see, if you continue to take one step in front of the other and honor him with your lives, and you do the tasks that he's given you to do for his glory, God is going to get his work done in this world because he's powerful enough to do so. God is generous. He's given everything that they needed in this parable. We learn that about his character. He's given us in a generous way everything that we need. He's perfectly equipped us in Christ. Something else we learn in the parable is that God entrusts tasks to us. He entrusts us with jobs. He gives us things to do. God allows us the freedom of choice to go about the work he's given us within his parameters. You notice that, that there's not this massive golden slate on the wall of the vineyard that tells them, first you do this, then you do this. No, he just provides the situation that is set and ready and not lacking anything and says, go for it. Go to work. Think about how little instruction, go back to the Garden of Eden. How little instruction did God give Adam? He told him some really good things. I want you to be fruitful, multiply, and care for the garden. <laughs> like, got it. That's easy. Right? Like, that sounds great. You guys, you realize that God entrusts tasks to us, but I think so many times we almost look at that as a bad thing when it's the work that God's given us. It's supposed to be a blessing to us to do it. It's a blessing to be entrusted with the task that God has called us to do. The fact that God gives us instruction, allows us to choose to honor him with our obedience, ought to humble us as well. He's given us his word. We have his word. If we're like, I don't know how to do this task. He's like, well, read my word, walk with me, I'll show you. He'll show us how to do it. So God is generous. God entrusts tasks to us. Here's something else we learned about God. And this is so good. God is patient. God is patient. Many times God gave the rulers the opportunity to produce the fruit that he was owed from his vineyard. Many times he sent them reminders. Many times he was long-suffering with them. And over and again, as they mistreated his servants, he endured their rebellion and their violence. God is so patient, patient with us. God's not waiting to whack you when you don't do something right. He's inviting you into himself to do it the right way. 
He's calling you into himself to go about these things in the way that he is equipping you to do them. Don't get so lost down the trail of thinking that you failed too much to be used by God. If you're breathing, you can be used by God. If you are breathing, you can bear much fruit. The question is this, will you just humbly come to him and say, I know I've done that. And he'll say, I've forgiven you for that. Lord, give me your strength to do this. Give me your strength to do this your way. Don't dwell on the failure. Dwell on the goodness of God. He is so patient, and if you are breathing, his patience is continuing to extend to you. It's continuing to do ministry in your heart and in your life. This ought to humble us and remind us of his heart, and it should never be abused or taken advantage of. It should be received as a gift. It should be encouragement. Peter writes in in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9 about the heart of God and delaying justice. This is a powerful passage, you guys. He says, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. That just blows my mind. Verse 9 says, the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God is patient because he wants all to repent. He doesn't take joy. If you read in Ezekiel, it says, God's like, do you think I take joy in the death of the wicked? Rather, I want the wicked to turn and repent. His patience is so that people would turn from their wickedness. It's not because he's like welling up a really good wallop, right? That's not why he's delaying. He's delaying because he's given people a chance to turn to him, to receive him. God is patient with us. He doesn't want any to perish. He wants all. Check it out in the Greek, you guys. All in Greek means all. It's it's true if you look at it. He doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That means he wants your neighbor that's difficult to deal with to repent. That means he wants me when I fail to repent. It means that by his grace and by his spirit, we can have that patience with those around us because it's what God has for them. You know, I, 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 I know that we share this. Like there's times where our patience just runs out, especially for us parents. You know, I've reached the end. I have no more. It's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. Right? We just turn into Popeye. But guys, think about this. How long-suffering is God? How long? Very long. Is there a time where his justice comes? Yes, but he calls us to be patient like him. And in fact, he says, if we want to love like him, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says that love is patient. It's the first descriptive used of love in 1 Corinthians 13. That's why we show love to those in our, in our close proximity and outside in, in the community and in the world, those who are not so close to us. We show love by being patient with them. And boy, I tell you what, that patience, it really reveals itself in the next description in 1 Corinthians 13 where it says love is patient, love is kind. What leads us to repentance? According to Romans 2, his kindness leads us to repentance. 
So the love of God is reflected. The love of God is revealed to us through patience and kindness. And that's how we are going to see people get saved in this world, by being lovingly patient and being lovingly kind. And God's going to work in them and say, hey, there's something different here. The character of God in this parable is so strikingly revealed because we see his patience as well. Here's another thing we know about God. God is just. God is generous. God entrusts tasks to us. God is patient. And God is just. He's perfectly balanced. He's also perfectly just. We should never doubt the justice of God. He may bear disobedience and rebellion for a long time. In the end, he will act. And that's why our message to this world is repent. Come to know Jesus so that that justice that you deserve is transferred to the Son. That's why he came. Isn't that what Peter said? He nailed the transcript of debt that was on me to Jesus on the cross. He nailed it to Christ. That's why we go to the world and they're like, I just think God's, he's just going to bring justice. I mean, listen, he hasn't yet. It's not yet. You have time. Receive the Lord Jesus. He died for that. That's why he came and died. If you are wallowing in condemnation because of failure and because of sin, that is not Christ. He calls you to himself so that you can receive his righteousness. So that you can be at peace, so that you can have rest. In Christ, in Jesus, we know Romans 8, it's one of the most beautiful chapters in all of Scripture. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to wallow in that brokenness. We're free to receive his forgiveness. You guys, his justice, when you think about the justice of God, his justice was carried out on the Son for our sake. When you think about the justice of God, it should bring rejoicing within our hearts because we have access to the Father through Christ who died in our stead. God's justice is really good news. And for those who are lost, it should compel us to go to them and say, you need to receive Jesus Because God has provided a way for you to not die in your sin. In the end, God acts. He takes action. Come to Jesus and be cleansed of your sins so that you will be found in Christ, forgiven, ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. Even more excitingly, do you know what this parable tells us about Jesus? Okay, we talked about the four things we learn about God. Here's... Here's three things it tells us about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the son. Now, if you're like, yeah, get it. Think about that. God in human flesh, the Messiah, is standing before the religious leaders of his day, revealing to them who he is. This is who I am. Jesus Christ is revealing to every person who can hear my voice this morning This is who I am. And if you have believed in him, that is great news. And if you have not believed in him, that is also great news because he's inviting you. Jesus is the son. He deliberately separates himself from the prophets who are represented by the servants. In him, God's last and final word has been spoken, which is a direct challenge to religious leaders who reject him. Because Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah because it's upon him that they want to pour out their contempt. They've already been plotting his death. And he says in the parable, these tenants, these tenant farmers put the son to death. 
he's warning them beforehand. There's an opportunity there to repent. Jesus is presenting himself as an opportunity for them. Jesus is the son. He is the final word that God has given to us. And there is no other name under heaven that's been given to men by which we must be saved besides the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, it's just me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one's come to the Father except through me. And you know what's amazing about that? Don't think narrow. That doorway was shut. A lot of people are like, boy, that's just, that's just so narrow-minded. It's like, no, there is a way. See it from the other direction. Jesus has provided a way to be righteous before God. There is a way. It's a message of hope. It's a message of grace. Jesus very clearly demonstrates he is the son. Jesus also, the second thing that we learn about Jesus in this parable, he knew he was going to die. Jesus knew he was going to die. As he's consistently reminded the disciples, he's told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to die and I'll rise on the third day. He's been warning them as they go. But here he reveals it to the religious leaders. Now they know, I'm going to die. The son will be killed. In the same minute that they're being given opportunity, Jesus is stating the fact. He knows where he's going. He reveals to them what's going to transpire. They're going to put him to death. Now, if you knew in this situation what was going to befall you, and you stayed, and you remained, and you continued forward, that's courageous. That's steadfastness. That's commitment to what God has called the Son to do, and he's given us the ability to do the same. We don't have to back away from difficult circumstances. Not when the Son has put his Holy Spirit within us and enabled us and given us the ability to continue forward no matter what's coming our way, no matter what we see on the horizon. He's continuing forward because what he has come to do matters more. Matters more than the pain and the struggle and the difficulty. Jesus courageously continues forward even though he knows that he's about to die within the week. This is the good part. Are you ready for the good part? Here's the third thing. Jesus is sure of his triumph. He is 100% sure that he will be victorious through death and that he will rise again. Here's how we know that. Look at verses 10 and 11. Haven't you read this scripture? Notice how Jesus closes this parable out with a quote from scripture. He says, haven't you read this scripture, which is speaking from Psalm 118? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. He says, haven't you read that passage? He reveals this psalm is perfectly fulfilled through not only his death, but his resurrection. Because the stone that the builders rejected will be placed as the foundation stone for what he will build his church upon. And Jesus can only do that if he is resurrected. He is absolutely 100% sure of his triumph. Guys, this is such good news. He is the foundation stone of what we're built on. It's like the old song says, Upon the solid rock I stand, 
All other ground is what? Sinking sand. Jesus is the foundation. He's the cornerstone on the rock. That's what we're built upon. For the religious leaders, this is enraging. Verse 12 tells us that they knew he was talking about them, but something that should have been wonderful to their eyes was instead a cause for them to seek to put him to death. They are the tenant farmers who wickedly corrupted what God had given them. They were looking to yield a harvest for themselves and not for the master. Because of this, Jesus Jesus has to be removed. Because of where they've placed themselves, because of the posture they've taken against God, it's made Jesus enemy number one. He's a problem to be done away with, as the parable speaks of, but that's not at all how his disciples and all who love Jesus see the owner of the vineyard, the vineyard itself, the servants, the son. No, no, we are those who are being built upon the cornerstone. First Peter 2, verse 5 says, You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. You know, the church looks at this and says, this is good news. Because everything that Jesus did was good. Because every action he took had meaning. And because he was walking in this direction means that we are getting a more sure foundation than we could ever have anywhere else. What has come about through his cross and resurrection, is it not wonderful as the psalmist wrote? As the psalmist penned in Psalm 118, it's wonderful in our eyes to see our Savior Jesus as our foundation. Whenever you grow weary or whenever you grow disheartened, Whenever you feel like the ground is destabilizing, remember that Jesus Christ is your foundation. Church, can I encourage you? We're talking about a vineyard and we're talking about bearing fruit. And this has been a theme that's recurred in Mark 11 and now in Mark 12. The fig tree, the temple cleansing, understanding the fruit borne by true worship, sourced in our faith in God. Remember that statement that Jesus made to his disciples? as they were looking at the fig tree withered, and he says, have faith in God. Put your faith in God. In John 15, Jesus says that he's the vine and we're the branches. Apart from him, we can't do anything, and he wants us to bear much fruit, amen? And so he flows through us. He's working in us. I was reminded as I studied this week of something Billy Graham once said. He said, mountaintops are for views and inspiration, but fruit is grown in the valleys. Hit me like a brick while I was sitting there studying. And I just remembered, I was like, what was that thing that Billy Graham said? Like about like, you guys, mountaintops are for views and inspiration, but fruit is grown in the valleys. Our faith can be encouraged and inspired by the mountaintop experiences. They have their place, but it, our faith is called into action in the valley. Our faith is called into action when we go through those valleys of life. That's where it starts to bear fruit. That's where the fruit will be sown and grown. It's in the valleys that we entrust ourselves to the shepherd as the psalm writes in Psalm 23, 4, even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. It is there, he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
There is a special comfort. There's a special encouragement that the Lord offers in the valleys and the dark valleys of our lives. And it's there that he makes himself so tangible, so real, so powerfully present and felt that we see and experience comfort that we can experience nowhere else. I was sharing with someone this last week who's struggling through some really tragic circumstances in their family. And they were talking about how, like, what they were going through. Like, you know, so many times we talk about walking by faith and not by sight. And just, I'm just kind of trusting the Lord for this and that and the other. And as they were going through this really difficult season, God was doing things really powerful in this last week that were, like, absolutely, like, just mind-blowingly comforting and encouraging and amazing to see. People coming by randomly to talk to them that, that the Lord just brought to them with something to say. Um, little memories and little things that were happening inside of their circumstances that were unexplainable outside of God's hand visibly moving. And I said, isn't it interesting that when we get into those darkest valleys, his light shines brighter. That when we get into those difficult circumstances, it's there that we start to see fruit like we'd never seen before. It's almost like he is more visible in the valley. Even though there's beauty up on the mountaintop and inspiration, all those things, it's almost like there's an intimacy and a powerful presence that he comes with in our times of greatest need. That is your savior. That's the work of Jesus. That's where he produces fruit. That's where he's flowing in us the strongest is in seasons of struggle. It's in those dark valleys when we're tested that our endurance in Christ is produced on the branches as James would teach us. In James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 it says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. What brings that about? The testing of our faith. Difficulty. He produces maturity and he completes us in those things we wouldn't be who we are without the struggle and we wouldn't be where we are without the shepherd never forget that we wouldn't be who we are without struggle and we would not be where we are without the shepherd and he is with us fruit is grown in the valleys but because he is the vine and we are the branches we entrust ourselves to the Father, who not only planted the vineyard, not only planted this place and put us where we are, but also is the one who comes along and prunes. He's the gardener. That's what Jesus says in John 15. He says the Father comes and he prunes. He actually clips things away and keeps us producing well, enabling us to produce even more fruit than we could ever imagine for his glory in this world. And he gives us his Holy Spirit as part of that sanctifying walk that we take day by day as i look at a parable about god's people's failure to be faithful to him i see hope that through christ we can be faithful to him because of his spirit because of what jesus has done in our hearts and in our lives because our hope isn't in this world our hope isn't in what we can accomplish our hope is in eternity in christ this morning, we get to share communion together. It's a family meal. It's something that we get to share as his sons and his daughters. It's something that unifies us. It's something that we, as we remember, Jesus says, when you do this, do it in remembrance of me.
That remembrance is not just mental recollection. In fact, it's calling the power of God and the work of his spirit into the present, saying, empower us and encourage us and give us the ability to go forward and live as your body now. Communion is a powerful thing that we get to partake in together. It shouldn't be done lightly. But I also want to remember you, remind us all of this as we get ready to take it, of the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he said, the Lord's Supper is an occasion of joy for the Christian community. This is a joyful celebration of all our Savior's done. Reconciled in our hearts with God and the body, we are receiving the gift of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And receiving that, we are going to receive forgiveness, new life, and restoration. Maybe that's something that you need to be reminded of. And by reminding, I'm saying it in the way that Jesus said it. When he said, remember me, I want to call into present for you to receive his forgiveness. To look to Jesus and say, I've fallen short. Please forgive me and to remember that when you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. This is a time of cleansing amongst the body. It's not just individual. This is a community thing. This is a belonging thing. So together as a church, we come to Jesus this morning and we just ask that he would make us one. Break down the walls of disunity and bind us together as his body. And thank him for his forgiveness and ask him for restoration and ask that he would use us in this community and in each other's lives for his glory. Worship team, come on up. I'm going to pray. And those who are serving communion, you can come forward as well. And we're going to sing for a bit while we hand out the elements for communion and then we'll take them together. So hold on to them once you have them and we'll walk through that together after we sing for a bit. Father, as we just take the opportunity this morning, we want to thank you for sending your son. We want to thank you for your patience. We want to thank you for your justice and all the things that we saw, your character and your word. God, this is why it's so good for us to read your word because we see your character. We see who you are. And God, I pray that as we understand that and as we ask for your Holy Spirit to come into us and to be at work, Lord, we want to press towards being a unified body and we recognize that we must confess sin as a body. And Lord, as a church, if there is anything that is in between us right now, if there's any walls that have been built up in between us, would you break those down, forgive us of disunity and bind us together as your church? Lord, would you just pull us together so that we can sing your praises? Lord, so that we can celebrate communion, Jesus, because it is by your wounds that we have been healed. And we celebrate that this morning by taking communion. So before we take the bread that represents your body, and before we take the cup that represents your blood, Lord, would you just give us in our hearts as we sing, as we pray, as we prepare a unity. Unify us as your church. Jesus, as we sing, would you just be glorified and would you be honored by our worship? And Lord, thank you for time this morning to celebrate your faithfulness to this church, to celebrate your faithfulness to us and to our families. Lord, we just want to celebrate Jesus, you. And Lord, when you return, when you come again, we, your church, are so ready to see you. We're so ready to receive you. And Lord, to be received by you. Lord, thank you that we are your bride. Thank you, Lord, that you will not come for your church and receive a cold welcome as you did at the hands of these tenant farmers. But Lord, you 
Jesus, your church, we're ready. We are ready to be with you forever. You're all we want. You're the love of our lives. And so be glorified, Lord, as we worship, as we take communion this morning together.